You're listening to the Screeners Podcast Network. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome back to a very special episode of the Geek Card Check. My name is Chris. And I'm Tyler. And I'm Kate, and really excited about this episode, but... Before we talk about the topic of the day, we have a returning guest, my delightful, nerdy, awesome, geeky spouse. Hi, Peter. Hi. Hi, Peter. I'm Hi, glad Chris. you're with Welcome us today. Again. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. Hmm. Always a pleasure. Well, now we're going to put you to work. Are you ready? Well, we'll see. All right. Well, then... Like, up front, I want to know from you guys, um, I want to start with Peter, because the listeners have already heard from Chris and from Tyler uh, about their history with Dune a little bit, and we'll remind them in just a second. But Peter, what is your history with Dune? I think I was 13 when I read Dune for the first time, back in the Mm. 80s, and I loved it, and I read it a bunch of times as a teenager, and then, you know went to college, got busy with life, and didn't do a lot of reading of fiction lately. Uh, But then when you guys announced that you were going to be doing this series on Dune, I'm like, oh, oh yeah. And so I picked up my copy from 1982, and I read the book in, I guess, about a day and a half. And I was like, oh, wow, this is good. And then I did a reread of just the first section that we're going to be covering tonight, um, last evening. and in the, in the intervening years, I have seen, you know, the uh, David Lynch adaptation and the miniseries. But, um, which, which we will not be discussing <laughs> at no. all. Oof. Thankfully. Okay. Um, and then, Chris, remind our yeah. listeners where you stand on the Dune spectrum with your history. I have zero Dune knowledge. I've never I've not seen any of the films nor read any of the novels or do I have any idea what the series is about? Uh, the the concepts, other than the things that have crept into popular culture, such as the large sandworms and the fact that it's on a desert planet. That's pretty mm. much all that I knew yeah. going in to Dune. The sandworms, nice. which which somehow you were able to see in the third Hobbit movie, I uh, that during too. the Battle Those of the Five Armies, really get around. Not sure I mean, why they and were they also showed up in worms. season two of the Mandalorian. Yes, it's true. True. Yeah. true, true. They have a great yep. casting agent. Just going to put that out yeah. there. <laughs> yeah, they're, okay. they're making some money. And Tyler, what was what's your history with Dune? This, I believe, is my third read. Um, and so I, I read it, I think, for the first time. It's somewhere around like senior year of high school or, or very early college. I read it for the first time. And actually, I listened to it on audiobook, so much like Chris did. That was my first listen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I, I read the second or third book not long after and and uh but again i didn't remember too much so so last summer i reread the book for the for the first time and and you know the learning curve was a little bit less steep and then i as i've been rereading now and i'm i'm only up to where we are currently i I didn't do a full reread i just i'm reading it along with us um man i i couldn't believe how the the learning curve 
is no longer there. You know, it's, it is not a steep learning curve. I know what's going on in the, in the plot. I know where it's going to go because I remember being pretty bewildered the first time and kind of just letting it happen. And, and I enjoyed it, but I definitely didn't pick up on details. Uh, and then last, the last time I, I read it, I got a little bit more and this time I am, I'm flying through and just, and really loving it. So, so, uh, those of you who are reading it for the first time, definitely, I wouldn't say, you know, uh, you know, foolish you for not re- for not reading it or understanding or not getting everything. I, I really would compare it. And and Peter, actually, before we started recording, um, read the quote on the back of that 1982 edition in which Arthur, Arthur C. Clarke compares it to The Lord of the Rings. It, it's a steep learning curve the first time. It really is. But it gets easier mm-hmm. and easier and you see more each time you read. Yeah. What about you, Kate? Absolutely. Um, so I th- this I think I've read it four times now something like that um and i did it audio every single time i've not actually read it with eyeballs with the exception of (laughs) sections that i read in preparation for uh our recording of this episode so i'm just i'm down for the audio i love the series definitely it's a good recording yeah Mm. yeah definitely steep learning curve at first but i'm finding i notice something new every time i read it and by something i that's kind of thing is plural there i usually notice many things anyway um so tonight we are discussing um the beginning of dune by the beginning dune is separated into three parts that are called books but for the sake of simplicity in the podcast tonight we're just going to call them parts so like if we're, we're doing part one tonight part one um and that's about the first 250 or so pages of the book depending on which edition that you are using um, we are not going to discuss uh, parts two and three of the book, so if you haven't read that yet, don't worry about spoilers. And that's also a reminder to those of you who've read Dune before to not go there. Um, <laughs> and we, but we will be spoiling the heck out of book one or part one. Yes. So this is your warning now. If you don't, if you have not read and you don't want it spoiled, hit pause on this. Go finish part one and then come back whenever you're done. Because yeah, we are spoiling this. As a yeah. point of interest, Chris, did you have you read beyond the end of part one at this point or no. listened to? Okay, so that's going to be interesting. Excellent. Yeah, no, if you, if you say anything beyond, I, you'll be spoiling it for me, so please don't. Don't um, be a jerk. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Okay, so let's dig in. Is, Sorry. Is this the time to maybe ask, is this maybe the time to ask Chris just, you know, what he feels about the beginning or do you have that saved for, for a little bit later? We're getting all that covered. Okay, there later. Okay, all right. I'm I'm really kids. I really uh, like. I want to know because. Yes. I don't know. I have I don't know. I'm concerned. for all of the things. <laughs> Stay tuned. All right. So, um, before we get into discussing the book and our impressions of it, etc., uh, Tyler, can you just give us like a brief summary of some of the major plot points of Part One, just to jog the memories of the readers who are like, "Yeah, I read that a while ago." Can you remind me? Yeah. Yeah, uh, super short. Uh, the Atreides family, Paul, Duke Leto, and, and Lady Jessica, who is Duke Leto's concubine and Paul's mother, arrive on the desert planet of Arrakis called Dune. Uh, before then, they have been uh, Paul has been tested by this crazy old witch lady who uh, is testing him for something, but he doesn't exactly know what yet, but it's going to be terrifying and terrible. Um, they arrive on the desert planet of, of Dune, and they are betrayed. Uh, his family is betrayed by a member of their staff. Paul, the heir to Duke Leto, and Paul's mother, Lady Jessica, survive the betrayal and must face their new life trying to survive in the deserts of Arrakis. Ooh. 
Alrighty. Will they good. survive? We don't know. And it was crazy as that was 250 pages, ladies and gentlemen. Yes. That what he just said took, <laughs> it took the them 200, 250 well, I, pages to get there. I skipped <laughs> the pain box. I skipped yeah, yeah, the, yeah. you know, I skipped some things. And But yeah, it's, oh, mm, I love it. I, yeah. I, spoilers. Yeah. I loved it. I love it. <laughs> wow. I'm so shocked. I, I might need a minute to go faint. Okay. <laughs> moving right along. Revive, revive. <laughs> so... We have this evening, or on this recording, we have three different categories of types of Dune readers. We have Chris, it's his first read. Tyler, uh, Peter, it's his first read since he was a kid. And then Tyler and I, we've had multiple rereads of Dune. So I think we have like three interesting perspectives on our text. So I'm going to start with you, Chris. Mm. Um, as your first read... Can you give a bit more of an in-depth uh, explanation of your experience with this as a first read? Like, what questions came up for you? What did you think was cool? What was confusing? Give us a look at it from your experience. I think I've said this a couple of times, but this this is a very dense book that it basically does not really coddle you in any way shape or form it, it throws you deep into this world and expects you to catch up when i was li i was listening to it i listened to the audio book version and i want to talk to you kate i'm glad you're currently listening to it again is that correct audio is my yeah okay so for me it felt like i was listening to um, a history book mm. uh it, it felt more as if like um these were uh, uh the 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 author uh, was trying to bring history to life. So these things actually happened. And he was expecting me to at least understand how culture worked, how um, you know certain religions, certain belief systems, mm -hmm. structures, uh, economics, um, you know, politics, how it worked. And none of that is really uh, in this book. There is a scene, a, a dinner scene, mm -hmm. um, that I found nearly uh, incomprehensible. Like, mm -hmm. it made zero sense whatsoever. Um, the, the basic plot of the... Um, uh, of, of what's happening, uh, there's a there's a betrayal happening. There's a there's something um, that you know there's a like a, a, a potential spy within the family that wants to hurt the family. Uh, I guess we're in spoilers. That they, they mm -hmm. wants to kill um, uh, yeah. the uh, the duke, and um, unfortunately, I, I I understood on a basic level that that was what wanted to happen, but I didn't understand how it happened, why it happened. Uh, I didn't understand who, I mean, I understand who did it, but I didn't understand why. And there was just a lot of like, um, under, there's, a, there's a moment when they're talking about a tooth. Mm. Um, and I didn't understand what it was all about until the next, you know, you know, like 15 or 10 minutes after they had begun to, to describe it. There's just a lot of just things that didn't quite um, connect with me. And then the other thing that made it very frustrating, and I was going to ask you, Kate, about this. Mm -hmm. The audiobook, um, the uh, Baron, mm -hmm. uh, his voice changes. Um, he, they go from this really, like, cool, like, um, like uh, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, like VFX voice mm -hmm. um, in one chapter to him not having it in the next. And so I didn't know if that was a different baron if that's a different character if there's a different thing and and i felt like the the reader of the book also 
a lot of his his voices changed, and so mm-hmm. I'm I was kind of relying on that because I'm not reading; I don't have the visual. Mm-hmm. Um, I was kind of relying on the audio to kind of give me some cues, and so for me, I found it um, very interesting. I felt like I'm just. I just felt like I had to put a lot of trust in what is happening, and I'm I'm sure I will understand. I get the basic plot points, like what you just said, Tyler. We went from A to B to C to D. Yeah, I get it. I, I get all of those points, mm-hmm. but like, I wasn't quite sure about relationships. I wasn't quite sure about nuance. Um, it just felt a little bit like I was missing a lot of the. Uh, the mortar that kind of holds the bricks together. I saw the bricks, yeah, good analogy. but they felt, yeah, it just felt a little bit shaky for me. And I'm just kind of trusting that the wall will hold. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's where I'm at right now. I'm in, but let me say too, I'm enjoying it. Um, I, I mean, I, I really, I truly am. I, I'm, I'm liking the, the world and the concept. I find myself because I'm a visual learner. I find myself going on the IMDb page and actually looking at the pictures mm-hmm. of the new movie that's going to be coming out because I get an idea of what, um, uh, uh, well, I don't want to say Utah. What's, what's, what's the, uh, Duncan, Idaho. um, Duncan, Idaho. Thank you. Yeah. I, was like, <laughs> Utah. Uh, I knew it was a state, um, <laughs> you know, like, but getting idea of like what the suits look like, the mm. world looks like, that kind of stuff gives me some grounding to like, okay, this is actually taking in a place in, in a real space and I can maybe bring it to life just a little bit more um, than, than it is when it's kind of confusing in my head mm-hmm. when I'm just listening. So that, that's where I'll start, but I, I am enjoying it, but I'm just, I am confused by those, by, by, by the, 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 the things that are connecting the major points. That would certainly resonate with my first read with it. I didn't know why anybody mattered. And um, even on prepping for this episode, there were more things that caught that I'm like, oh, that makes this other thing make way way more sense. And so maybe some of that's also a function of having repeatedly done the audio book rather than the print text where you can flip back and forth. Um, But yeah, definitely. That that is 100% what I remember thinking. I, I... the you Chris, you described my first experience as well. Where I was like, "Oh, I get it. I, I mean, I get, I get the plot. I get. We're going from here to here to here, but the mm-hmm. details were one hundred percent lost on me. And on, honestly, every single time I've read this, even though it's the same plot, it's like a new book each time. It's it's fascinating. <laughs> it it, it would have been very helpful. Rarely have that. It would have been helpful for me to have a glossary of terms. And while I was listening to it, I felt like it would be cheating. But when I finished it, when I finished book uh, part one, um. I'll be honest. I, I I went to Spark Notes and I re- just to make sure that I understood yes. what actually had mm-hmm. happened because yeah. I, 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 I when I finished it I was like I don't know if I can actually <laughs> I, I might be wrong I'm I may not have understood what happened in this book, um, yeah. but it helped me like okay no, no no that is what happened you are getting it that little thing okay great so I I wasn't so far off but at the same mm-hmm. time I wasn't sure <laughs> Peter yes. you look like you've got something for us well. I guess I'm the only one that has not done audiobook version on this time through. Um, it's funny how Chris mentioned that uh, a glossary would have been handy. Well, yes. in the appendixes, in the back yes. of the print copy, there is the terminology of the Imperium. And yeah. that's also reproduced if you go on to like um, fandom.wiki, whatever. Yeah. Um, but the introductory paragraph, in studying the Imperium... Arrakis and the whole culture which produced Muad'Dib, 
many unfamiliar terms occur. To increase understanding is a laudable goal, hence the definitions and explanations given below. I, and then I, it just I, runs through a whole bunch of these things, and there's cross-references. And I mean, you were saying that it's a dense work. Totally. Yeah. Like, Herbert yes. did an incredible world-building job here. And uh, yeah, I'm, mm, I'm going to disagree. <laughs> I, <laughs> okay. think, I think if you need a glossary of terms in order to enjoy the story, I don't think you're doing a good job of telling the story. Like, I just don't. Like, it's okay if every once in a while you're like, this thing, if you want more information about it. But if you do, genuinely, like, there are a few things in there. I just, like, I don't know what that even is. Like, I don't, I don't even understand that you're saying a word. It, it does not have any meaning. And there is no context. There, I, okay. I genuinely was like, I don't even know. Counterpoint. You yeah. said it's a bad job of storytelling. I yes. said it's a great job of world building. And don't yes. forget, the first chapter of The Lord of the Rings, that yeah. masterpiece that we all enjoy, starts with a treatise about the furry feet of hobbits. Yeah. yeah. What is that? Sure. Who cares? Yeah. That's not, you know. Um, right. I mean, I, I, but, but what I'd say is, is that in order to read, I mean, okay, we, we can get way off. Never mind. There's no reason you can discuss it. <laughs> yeah, I'm just saying, I, I'm just saying, if you need a glossary of terms, I, the first rule of storytelling is, is is show don't tell right you know what i mean like you, you want to be able to like within the story within context be able to understand the basic concepts of what is happening in your story and i felt there were big chunks of this because of the way he chose to write like the, write it so dense it was more confusing and there was no way to approach it mm -hmm. from just the text Okay, Although, I want to put a pin be... in that discussion. Sure, okay. okay, all right, all right. I don't want to get too far off track here. So, um, Peter, this is your first reread since you were a kid. Um, how did your experience change from then until now, and what stayed the same for you? Well, when I first read it as a 13-year-old, I experienced confusion, and I couldn't remember who Thufer Howitt was versus Duncan <laughs> Idaho versus all these characters and names. Yes, um, yes. But hey, I was 13. Um, subsequent rereads, um, I now have a greater familiarity with these characters and their backgrounds because I have um, dived into all the crunchy appendixes at the back of the book. And um, <laughs> to be fair, Herbert wrote this in 1965 when audiobooks were, you know, not unheard of. Yeah, not. Um, and not I'm right. sure that he expected. I mean, for Arthur C. Clarke to say, I know of nothing comparable to it except The Lord of the Rings. Well, okay, I'm one of those geeks who has read all of the appendixes in The Lord of the Rings, who has learned how to write in mm. a couple of the scripts that Tolkien developed. So this for me, especially now that I'm coming at it with more background knowledge and also familiarity with um, some Arabic and other cultural um, perspectives, Oh man, it was so much better than I remembered. Hmm. Cool. What about you, Tyler? Uh, kind of like I had said when I chimed in for Chris, uh, for uh, on Chris's response, I every single time I reread this, I think it was it's the subtle the subtleties of the world building that become clearer as I reread it. So again, mm -hmm. I, I plot I got, 
And then each time is I'm making connections. I'm saying, oh, oh my gosh, okay, that this is why. Like I had actually, I don't think I really I knew it because maybe I'd read some background or something like that. I knew about the the fact that they don't have. Um, you know, thinking machines and stuff like that, it, like actual computers, but um, but the Mentats are that. It was one of those things that for some reason didn't click from the text. I, I don't I don't ever remember reading it in the text and understanding that um, until this this reread. I knew it. I knew it from like a probably a wiki that I had read or something like that, but I didn't get it from the text. Just that's one example mm-hmm. I can think of. But every time I reread it, it's the subtleties of the world building are what uh, are what really begin to shine the kind of nooks and crannies this is i can say truly the same for tolkien this will not be the last comparison we make i reread uh, the lord of the rings every year and um and every year when i reread it i see world building things that just shine through again each time um and i still would say tolkien is on a higher level but but still herbert is not far behind herbert is herbert is doing Herbert is doing some really nifty things here that are that are interesting. And I will say that I'm excited to see what parts two and three hold because uh, I I don't ever remember liking the opening as much as I do did this time around. Mm. So, got it. So before we dive into our discussion uh, and questions and such, um, Peter is going to take a few minutes and give us a little bit of a deeper dive into the world that might provide additional context for some of the stuff that we're going to talk about. So I'm going to hand it over to you, Peter. All right. Um, one of the things that I didn't realize until just this most recent rereading is that the novel is set 21,000 years at least in the future. And in that time, the first 10,000 years or so of humanity's exploration of the galaxy um, were, uh, as you would expect, massive colonization of planets. Um, in that first 10,000 years, according to the accumulated knowledge, um, humanity had uh, colonized over 13,000 worlds. So they had spread far and wide. Kind of um, like a diaspora to the stars. Yeah, yeah. And another notable thing that occurred in this vast span of time is um, cultures and religions had become kind of intermingled. And so um, one of the major uh, focuses of one of the religions is uh, called Zen Sunni. Well, that's, you know, this hypothetical syncretism of Zen Buddhism and Sunni Islam. And uh, throughout the novel, we see quotes from what they call the Orange Catholic Bible. Yes. Which is a, comp- a compilation of the greatest texts from, I think they were talking about 14 great sages. And it was uh, produced by a committee. And we're again, talking like 8,000 years beyond our time, which means uh, approximately 19,000 years before the novels set. So religion plays a major role in this novel. And there are similarities with what we think we know about religions today, but then there is a whole other world, so to speak, Um, Mm -hmm. of unexpected combinations and permutations. Now, leading up to the point of there are no thinking machines, no computers, um, at approximately 10,000 years from our time, um, there was a rise of the machines and humanity was fighting for its survival. And ultimately, humanity uh, won and defeated the artificial intelligences. 
Um, but as a result of that, and that whole struggle which took a century, uh, is known as the Butlerian Jihad. Jihad in the sense of struggle, struggle against, not like crazy suicide bombers or whatever. Um, but the thing that rose out of that is the saying which is found in the Orange Catholic Bible, thou shalt not make a machine in the likeness of a man's mind. The problem is, if you're doing interstellar travel without any kind of computational aids, you're mm -hmm. going to get lost real quick. Mm -hmm. What happened is that humanity began to develop its innate talents, and obviously not everyone is suited to become a mentat or a navigator for the Space Guild, but humanity by this time had um, explored not only physical space, but also human potential. And so from this destruction of the thinking machines, there arose a number of schools for developing human mental potential. One of those schools is known as the Bene Gesserit, which appears to be a religious order, but we find out in the novel that they are much more than that. Oh, yeah. And they train their uh, adepts, their sisters, in psychology and autonomic control and uh, martial arts and powers of manipulation uh, to the extent that a Bene Gesserit can choose whether she bears a child at all, whether that child will be male or female, complete control of the person's body and incredible powers of observation, intuition. Um, the voice. Yes, the yeah, voice. Like that. Um, the other uh, school, and this was uh, mentioned by the Reverend Mother, was the Spacing Guild, and their interest was not so much politics and human behavior as it was pure mathematics, because they still needed to navigate interstellar space and it turns out that navigators are perhaps even a mutation of humanity, but still human, and they are able to perceive more than just the three physical dimensions and the fourth dimension of time that we're all familiar with. They're able to see multiple dimensions, and they navigate their ships through what they call folded space. It turns out that their heightened perception of these dimensions is enhanced, by a spice or a drug which is found on one planet and one planet only. Anybody care to, to guess which planet that is? Yeah, Dune. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so this drug or spice combined with the intense development of human potential um, has brought about the possibility for people to, okay, most people, they use it as a spice in their food, and it tastes yummy and maybe gives them a slight euphoria. Uh, spice beer, apparently, is much more intoxicating than regular beer. But for those who have had the preparation mentally, physically, with discipline, it opens up whole new worlds. And so the, pro the best example as background is this ability to navigate through multidimensional space. And so between the time of the Butlerian Jihad which brought about the rise of these schools and the present in Dune, another 11,000 years have passed. And it has been a time of relative stability. It's basically an imperial feudalism. So kind of like the Holy Roman Empire, um, you've got the emperor 
and his allies, and then various noble houses who are kind of the counterbalance to the emperor. And then you've got the Bene Gesserit, who are the silent manipulators behind the scenes, and then the Space Guild, who makes travel and commerce and everything else possible, who try to stay neutral, but basically, no matter who you are, the Emperor or one of the houses, if the Space Guild decides you're not leaving your planet, you're not leaving your planet. So mm -hmm. everyone has to play nice with the Space Guild. And I think that's all that we really need to get into for background. Oh. So, <clears throat> I love that. Thank you. <laughs> but why didn't I know that? <laughs> <laughs> because you didn't read the appendix? Is? Oh. Yeah, I, I, I agree. <laughs> so that's the problem is, is that like, I, I, I started reading it. You know what I yeah. mean? Like, it, yeah. so like, I, I, I agree that, but that would be at the end, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, well, and I mean, I, I will also the, say there's a, there's a lot of that that is like, like I said, I, I'm finally noticing like, I'll, again, I, so your, your criticism still does, I think, hold up to a point, Chris, I'm finally noticing this stuff in my, uh, on my third reread. Where I'm like, oh, that's what they meant. I knew that, but like, that's I. So I, I feel is, you. It, it is in there. It's just it is at the very subtle. beginning. At the very beginning, when they're still on the the, the first the lush planet, um, uh, they they are they do bring up some of these things, mm -hmm. but they're very much in passing. And, you know why they and the only them. one, the yeah. only one that that they do talk about is the Bene Gesserits, and that is. Very fascinating, and I think that is my favorite part of it. It's, it's yeah. a very Jedi. It feels like I'm in yeah. Star Wars, because yeah. um, so, there's some really cool. The voice is very cool. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, the idea that they can pass notes back and forth, and there's like a secret code that mm -hmm. you know that they're like being able to like read in and know if you're lying or not. All that stuff is very cool. Um, but that whole background. That would that that's a good way that's a good set the stage kind of like um here's the question know, for crawl, you Chris. you know what I mean at the very beginning <laughs> it would, would have been nice question. to just kind of set the stage would yeah. you rather have an appendix in a print book and obviously you're doing audio so you can't but have an appendix in a print book so you can look things up when you get confused or would you rather have a hundred pages of exposition giving you the background before the no. story starts no and that's my point is I don't think good storytelling has ex it, it does doesn't tell its story in exposition it tells its story in action yeah so by by because i think it's very cool when you start to learn the benny because the main character i don't know if he's he if he is the main character or not but um the main character is learning that his mom has these powers is putting his hand in a box so you're you're kind of with him like you don't know what he doesn't know and as he does it's revealed to you and it's cool and i like that mm -hmm. the problem is is this book is not just from his perspective it's omnipresent right so yeah. you should have a better idea of what's going on in the world if i'm an omnipresent viewer because if i don't then things get even more and more cloudy if i was just in what does I, why can't i think paul right mm -hmm. paul yeah if i was just um in paul's head the entire time i'd be a little bit more forgiving of this because i'd feel like okay i'm experiencing it as he is and it's a mystery and it's unsolving but that's not the way it's presented that's all i'm saying that's that's my biggest my biggest issue is that i'm omnipresent and yet i'm not omniscient <laughs> like i'm not being oh, given the, the, the thing that i need well, i'll be interested to see how you feel at the end of the book if you feel like any of that was worth the steepness of it <laughs> 
Correct. Correct. And, and, and maybe it is. Maybe the payoff will be worth the confusion. And if that's the case, I'll eat, I'll eat the whatever it is, crow. And Pow. hopefully by the time <laughs> we're finished reading it and then the movie comes out, although we're not talking yeah. about the movie, you'll be able to understand the movie much better because to take a book of this density and compress it into, I don't know, even a right. two-hour movie, they're going to leave so much out. There's going to be so much left unsaid. So totally. to all our listeners... Yes, it is dense, it is daunting, but totally worth checking out, especially if you want to enjoy the movie more. Absolutely. This is why, Chris, I, I'm recommending still that you watch the sci-fi miniseries. Tyler, we'll I'm see. going to say stop it now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, moving on. So I have six questions uh, for you guys for discussion before we just open it up uh, to everything. First one, the very beginning of the book, chapter one, what's the deal with the Gomjabar test and why does it matter and what's the whole Kwisak Haderach thing? Like, why does this matter to us? Um, Tyler, would you like to get, take a stab at that? Kwisak uh, Haderach, as far as I am remembering, he's, he's the messiah, essentially. He's the... He's the or, you know, insert insert other reference here. You know, he's the one who will bring balance to the force. He is the you yep. know, he's the he's the messiah. He's the one who's going to save all, everybody and and be the the leader of the the fremen. Um, well, which that's not there. Yeah. Anyway, but um. So anyway, that's that's what that is. And he's being tested. The the big thing is because Paul is is one of the ultra ultra rare or potentially at least one of the ultra ultra rare rare male Benny Gesserits, and they're testing whether he is and then whether or not he has mentat capabilities so basically they are seeing is he neo is he is he the you know <laughs> can he see the matrix is he the guy who can see beyond everything and is he going to be the answer to all of their their questions but the other the other thing that they're bringing up too at least we're seeing seeds of it here is are, are they able to control him um is he is is paul able to kind of is Paul able to be controlled by the Benny Gesserit or is he going to do his own thing? Because those darn males, those pesky males, they always, you know, they do their own thing. So anyway, that's that's kind of my, my nutshell of it. I, I But my commentary on it, too, is I, I forgot how much I love this chapter. I I don't know. I don't know what about it either. It's just it, it is a it's the tension in it of his hand in the box. And he is like he knows his skin is sizzling off and, uh, you know, and all this other stuff. And then he pulls it out and he. He withstand. He has withstood more than anybody you know usually is able to. So yeah, I, I love the tension of that chapter. Mm -hmm. Peter, would you like to add a bit to that? Well, I thought it was interesting that Tyler mentioned it was in a way a test of whether the Bene Gesserit could control Paul, because mm. his mother, the Lady Jessica, had been raised as a Bene Gesserit, um, and in fact her main teacher was the one who was administering the test to Paul. Yes. And yet the Lady Jessica was not supposed to bear a son to Duke Leto. She was mm -hmm. supposed to bear a daughter. So even right there, there is a strain yeah. of unpredictability of the inability to be controlled in that family line. And um, so that was, I thought, kind of interesting. The other thing, I mean, Kate, you'd mentioned a Gom Jabbar test. But reading through the text, and yeah, I did read fairly closely, it's actually the Gom Jabbar was the, the punishment if you failed the test, basically mm -hmm. instant death from poison. Oh, and the that's name of the, true. What it really was is a, 
a human test. As yep. um, the Reverend Mother says, um, you've heard of animals chewing off a leg to escape a trap? That's an animal kind of trick. A human yes. would remain in the trap, endure the pain, feigning death that he might kill the trapper and remove a threat to his kind. And then later on in the chapter, she says, we Bene Gesserit sift people to find the humans. Our test is crisis and observation. So because the Bene Gesserit have this huge and you know millennia long program of control and behind the scenes and making political alliances through marriage and all this stuff, they are very eager to determine who is in fact fully human, fully capable of realizing potential, and they want to make good matches in that sense. And Chris, it looked like you were going to jump in there. No, I just appreciate you saying that because we were, we were talking about that. The human thing is what stood out to me, and I just didn't understand why that was so important. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like, I still don't under, I still don't get like, we need to make sure you're human. Like, okay, so are there people that aren't human, or what do you mean by human? Are you saying, like, moral are you because what this felt like to me is that they were unlocking latent potential within him if there was there it would have been unlocked through this uh, whatever you want to call it crucible or whatever mm -hmm. it is by sticking his hand in this box mm -hmm. so that's what i was kind of taking away obviously he's been being put through a test to see if he's able to endure and if he can endure that means that means something. Do you know what I mean? Obviously, yeah. we all know what that you know. But I just it, it, it was it was very confusing because what does that mean? What does human mean to them? At the most basic level, um, he was having an unspeakable pain inflicted on him, and the instinctive yeah. thing to do is to pull your hand away from the pain. Right. I mean, that's just what a, a a body will do. Right. But the test for the humanity was that. Intellectually, he was told, if you do that, if you react according to instinct, you will die. So then the test of the humanity was, can the will, can the mind overpower the instinctual response? And that is the test of being human. Right. But, uh, but, but would you say if you're not, if you don't, if you fail it, you're not human? Is that what the, th th that's my point is, is that like, yeah. I, is it actually, is that actually what that means? That, that's why I was a little confused. I, I, what, what I thought it was going to be, because I think we talked about before um, me reading this, we talked about there were no thinking machines. Mm -hmm. So I was like, oh, human. So that means like a big portion of this population are like cyborgs, <laughs> like they're augmented in some way. They must be. And like they do that secretly, and it's not you know you know they, they, they everybody thinks it's a sin, but everybody does it anyway. And so in order to be a part of this high order, you need to be fully human. No, you know what I mean. I think like, it, but but that's not what that is at all. It, that's not what it sounded yeah, like at all. Terminology is more confusing. What's actually yeah. going on and in this case? It's basically do you have that higher order of ability of self mastery? to not let your animal brain take over and you can use your will and your control to master yourself and do what needs to be yes. done. That's, See, I didn't catch that. Thing. I didn't catch that at all. I, I knew something had happened. He passed a test, but I didn't know what human meant. I mm -hmm. didn't know, yeah. you know. Yeah. So he, there's a, there's a discussion that happens right after that. So, so Paul is talking to his mother and, and Peter for us, this is on page 11 at the bottom. Um, uh, <laughs> Peter and I have the same book. Uh, he's, he asks, um, he, he says, why do you test for humans? He, or so he's looking to, to the Reverend Mother. He asks, why do you test for humans? 
She replies, to set to set you free. Free? And then she replies, once men, once men turned their thinking over to machines in the hope that this would set them free, but that only permitted other men with machines to enslave them. And right. then up at the top of the next page, thou shalt not make a machine in the likeness of a man's mind. He's quoting the, the Orange Catholic Bible. Uh, she says, right out of the Butlerian Jihad in the Orange Catholic Bible, she said, but what the OC Bible should have said is thou shalt not make a machine to counterfeit a human mind. Have you studied the mentat in your in your service? And so, you know, that's that idea that they're getting at. And, and you guys could probably jump on, on this better than I can too, but that's an idea that he has mentat capabilities and he's sort of been bred. And so is he, you know, as you'll see, as you'll meet other mentats as well, they're not, they're not, they're not really human. I mean, there's there's a little bit of, of nuance going on here, but he's, they're testing to see whether or not he is still a human in the midst of all of this other stuff that they're doing to him. I, that's how I read it, at least. I don't know about you, you guys. Also, I just wanted to note that um, we're using human the way that the Bene Gesserit did, which was True. a really um, elitist perspective, looking mm -hmm. at the mass of people alive as basically sheep. So, and yeah, only yeah. the only the few, only the elite, are truly human. Mm -hmm. well, That's an important point. In the way they mean that, yeah, but it still dehumanizes quite literally yes. almost everybody alive, which is yeah. not something I'm really comfortable with. Right. Yeah. So that, you are human. human test. Well, yeah. whenever you view everyone as breeding subjects, yeah, you're on a slippery slope. Yeah. Um, I, so. Go ahead, Peter. I did want to add a little bit more about the Kwisatz Haderach, which you had asked about. Mm -hmm. um, it turns out that that's actually a term from the Kabbalah in mm -hmm. Judaism. And uh, it's uh, actually, uh, actually, I'm not sure if it's Hebrew or which language, but it means something like the one who shortens the way. And that meaning mm -hmm. was taken by Herbert, and apparently that's what Kwisatz Kwisatz Haderach means in this invented background language that he refers to, the Jacobsa hunting language. And so this Kwisatz Haderach, yeah, it's a messianic figure, but it's also the one who shortens the way. And then we do get some explanation in that first book about how he is the one that can, by using these heightened mental powers, see into both the male and the female parts of this unconscious awareness um, but then it also ties into the whole thing of the multidimensional awareness, which is enhanced by the spice, because the one who shortens the way is also the one who can perceive all these multidimensions and possibilities in the future, and then select amongst those possibilities. Yeah. So, it's, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's sort of why I meant the Neo thing, too, a, a little bit, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, I'm going to move on to the next question, so I want to keep track of our time here. Um, which relationships or characters really speak to you guys and who are you rooting for and why? And Chris, um, start with you. I mean, honestly, Lady Jessica is um, pretty, pretty, pretty great. Um, I, I think she and um, uh, her son are, I, I feel like that is the, the, the main thrust of, of the story. I mean, that's, that's who we start with. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, we're slowly introduced to the other characters in the world. Um, so I hope, I hope we continue to f find out more about this uh, Jedi Order um, <laughs> and and this, the, what you just mentioned these multi multi-dimensional 
things and all that stuff. I'm also very interested in what what are, what are the sand people called the, the, the natives? Yes, very interested in them as well. Uh, don't know yeah. anything about them, very little about them yet. But the idea that like they're able to, uh, you know, somehow survive this massive massive worm attack, and there's like a couple left, and they they see them in the distance or whatever. Like that is very interesting to me as well. Mm-hmm. So those 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 two storylines are are. Are interesting, and I feel like we're those are about to like intersect. Those two, mm-hmm. those two things seem to be setting up as the most interesting, and it feels like that's where we're headed next. So that's good. Tyler, what about you? Who's your favorites? That's that's exactly what I would have said as well. I I wish that we had, and I guess that's part of the tragedy. I wish we had more Duke Leto and Paul. Um, and there's even some commentary in the book of of you know he actually is a good father. We just you know, but he. He's also, you know, a very practical kind of a person. And so we, we don't see too much. But what we do see, I like. I, I just wish we would see more. <laughs> it's definitely Lady Jessica and Paul who are just the core of the heart of at least this part of the book and are, are super engaging. Yep. And Peter? Um, probably my favorite character is actually Dr. Kynes, mm-hmm. who is the Imperial Planetologist. And he's mm-hmm. interesting to me because he is a man of science, but he's also been steeped in the Freeman culture. And uh, as we start to see him encounter the Atreides family, and he has this deep knowledge of all these ancient religious texts, although he's a man of science and he's never really placed much stock in these old prophecies other than as an expression of the, the deep culture of the people. And yet, each time some element of these prophecies is fulfilled by Paul and Jessica, Lady Jessica, he is he's shocked and he begins to transition from this empirical, imperial man of science who has this other background knowledge to suddenly reevaluating this background. And um, he, he correct me if I'm wrong. He's working for the Baron, right? Like he's he's going to betray them. But as he gets to know them, he likes them more and more, correct? Yes, yes. That, okay, I, I want to make sure I understood his character because there's also another character that was betraying them. Yeah. And sometimes I was like, wait a minute, who, who are we with yeah. right now? Everybody's betraying everybody. Okay, the, I get it. Okay. The betrayal of um, Kynes that he was set up to do was not so much an active betrayal as just to uh, overlook the Baron's activities on the planet that he was supposed to have abandoned. Got it. Okay. Cool. Um. Next question for you guys is what role does... Wait a minute, wait a minute. What's yours, Kate? We uh, only have so much time. I'm moving us along here. I would just give us a name. Give us a name. You don't have to go into it. Just give me a name. What, what do you like? I'm not hearing enough from you. Okay, shout out Mapes. I find absolutely fascinating his ah, relationship cool. with yeah. Lady Jessica on her own. And yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Kynes is also... Dr. Yui, I want to know so much more about his history than we actually learn. I agree with Yui. I agree. That's a that's a good one. His 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 character seemed much more complex than they even gave him time for, and that was unfortunate. Because the two thing I mentioned this earlier, yep. but yeah. that was like there was something happening there that I just wasn't understanding. Yeah. Did you with that one where he's he's setting up an assassination of Harkonnen? I get it. I just meant more like his his actual relationship, mm-hmm. like the tr- like the trust and like um, like the. I don't know. I it, it felt like there's something else happening there in between those two characters mm-hmm. that was interesting. Okay, what role does water play in Arrakis, and 
why do we have a planetary ecologist in the mix? Tyler, I'm going to start with you. Well, water is life. I mean, it's and I like the idea of water as a commodity, but not not as not in particular as money. I mean, although they they do talk about that, but but so much water is life. Uh, they there's the the scene where Lady Jessica is talking about the is it the date palms and uh, where uh, and I'm I'm forgetting this one. It's um, somewhere around. I don't know why it's page fifty stick in my head, but anyway, the, like where where one date palm tree is. Is it a hundred men or something like that is worth a hundred men's water per day or ten men's water per day? And so they like they, just the idea that, and this will become even more as we get into the fremen. But um, the idea that water is life and that water is this water is wealth. They they have a cistern with with you know x number of liters of water per day on Not the. Not just wealth; it's power and power, power. over. Yes. True, true. Power is the better word. Yeah. So it's it's which is fascinating, and and the idea that we're you know with the still suits are is just is so yeah. cool and and uh, unique, and and we see that you know that is one of those big things that has bled into popular culture is is the idea mm-hmm. of the still suit or things like it. Um, despite the fact that I don't think we've gotten a good depiction of it yet uh, in uh, in any kind of film, including the new one, it doesn't look good. It it doesn't look right as far as I can think of. But still. Yeah, I think that. Like, the spice is talked about so much as the most important thing about Dune, but water is plays such a central role in the power mm-hmm. dynamics and how it is used. Uh, I think there's a particularly important point that when the Atreides come to the planet, like, the water is all hoarded, and they have this beautiful conservatory in the palace, and meanwhile there are people who are dying from lack of water out in the world. And so um, when you enter Duke Leto and his family, and at this infamous dinner party... Uh, yep. Lady Jessica says, I was gonna bring this up. Yep, yep, we have plans to uh, to keep the conservatory, but we're also holding it in trust for the people of Arrakis. They want to actually change the climate so that way plants can be grown anywhere and nobody's going to die from lack of water. And that's a huge power uh, change there. And that yeah. um, revelation of Jessica, Lady Jessica of her and Duke Leto's vision for the future of Arrakis is what finally brought Kynes over from siding with the Baron to mm-hmm. supporting them uh, because they shared his vision for the planet. He was a planetary ecologist. Well, why um, do we need him? What was the point of his role in this? Uh, well, um, he is much more than he seems, and we'll find that out. Although there have been hints in this first section, but we find out his true significance later on, and I'm not going to spoil that for Chris. Thank Likewise, um, at that dinner party again, uh, we do get hints of one particular role that water has in the ecosystem of Dune, but only hints. And the reveal when it comes later is like, wow, that's major. But mm-hmm. I'm not going to spoil it for Chris. I'm just going to tease him with it. <laughs> Perfect. Well, yeah. so along that lines, then, we, we've got a power balance that's changing that the arrival of the Duke and the things that he and Lady Jessica are saying to the powerful elite, this leads to the death of the Duke. So I want to ask you guys, why did the Duke have to die and what message does that send? And I want to start with Chris on this one. Now I, I saw this question and I'm not entirely sure what it means. Uh, he didn't have to die. Um, why, what are you talking about narratively? Do I do I know why narratively he had to die, or do I? Do you mean why did he die? Who, 
the people that kill them the, their, their, their reason for that, killing them. Because I think it's an interesting thing to explore. Well, I mean, honestly, you know, it's a it's a great inciting incident, right? I mean, it's it, it is the thing that that shakes everything up in the story. It, it's what changes. It's the reason why. I mean, just just from like my idea of how stories are being told, it's it's why Lady Jessica and um, and Paul now are going to go and meet with the the people uh, of, of of the planet. He's going to learn more about the spice. He's going to uh, become one with the spice. He's going to do his training, and then he's going to come back mm-hmm. and he's going to defeat the bad guys. I, have one I mean, with like, the spice. The spice is one with me. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it just kind of what this is what kind of feels like. He's gonna mm-hmm. he's gonna learn about the the, the worms and. The, when you say the ecology, he's going to become one with the earth and understand like this, the circle of life uh, Lion King. It's kind of <laughs> weird, the way, the because way, I know nothing about this, but that's just what it seems like is going to happen because they mm-hmm. keep talking about the importance of, like you're saying, the ecology and one thing that leads to the other and the fact that it w- it's so interesting. There's a scene I wanted to say earlier, but just real quick, you know, the, um, the Duke uh, decides that he's no longer going to um, you know, uh, give he's going to give water freely rather than give them like the the like the, mm-hmm. the thing that they clean their hands with the water they've cleaned their hands with. Mm-hmm. But then they he realizes that the woman that did that also made money. There's like there's a if he cuts one thing off, it's also going to destroy a whole arm of economy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so like it's just a very interesting thing that even if you want to do the good right thing, it's it may actually hurt a lot of people too. Yeah. And so like there's a lot of connection points where you do a good thing, but that also is going to hurt somebody. Yep, that's fascinating. That's fascinating. Absolutely, there's a point where we are getting to we're privy to the Duke's weariness with all of the yeah. political games and everything else. And he says, the text says that he felt in that moment that his own dearest dream was to end all class distinction and never think again of deadly order. And that's super dangerous <laughs> if you're all about upholding the power structures. If you're if you're the leader, yeah. If, if you're the leaders of, you People know, this, who benefit from it all. The status mm. quo. Yeah. Oh, good. So with that in mind, who are the good guys and the bad guys? And is it more complicated than that? And I'm going to start with Tyler. Oh, the Baron's the bad guy. I mean, he's, he's a he's yeah. A his big voice bad guy. in the, his voice in the audiobook alone lets you know he's the bad guy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it, I mean, of course, it's more nuanced than that. But I, I think that's that's your that's your your short answer is the Baron. The Baron is the bad guy. The Harkonnen. But I, I don't even know if all the Harkonnens are. It's just. You could even say the system is, you know, for for having placed them in this way and and stuff like that. But, uh, but I think. And, and Paul's our good guy, right? We like Paul. Or maybe it's a little more complicated than that. It, I, but I, yes, from this first section, yeah, Paul's the good <laughs> yeah. guy. Lady Jessica, I mean, she's his mom, but she was also part of this infinite uh this nefarious manipulative structure yes. behind the scenes pulling and and the fact that she has this power but chooses not to use it i think is definitely a point in her favor as being one of the good guys because yes she she observes that she could have used the voice and made duke leto marry her she could mm-hmm. have made yep. him do this yep. but she also realized that doing that would basically take all meaning out of any interaction that she would have with him henceforth. Mm-hmm. Um, she, 
things get a little more complicated as the book goes on. Um, yeah. yeah, but it's really easy to identify <laughs> the bad guys. Yeah, yeah, I can agree with that. But I want to offer you a quote as something to think about as we go through book, as the second part and the third part of the book. So um, here's your quote. To hold Arrakis, the Duke said, one is faced with decisions that may cost one his self-respect. He pointed out the window to the Atreides green and black banner hanging limply from a staff at the edge of the landing field. That honorable banner could come to mean many evil things. Hmm. Yeah, I had kind of, while I was preparing for this, realized that it's tempting to cast the House of Atreides as the good guys. Mm -hmm. But the fact remains, their presence on Dune is a colonial presence. Yeah, and they are intent they are intent on extracting value from the planet and its people. And granted, the Atreides are much more conscientious than other houses would have been. And, I mean, Duke Leto's concern for his men is genuine and commendable. But his attempt to gain, for example, the trust of the Fremen is still a transactional concern. Mm -hmm. He thinks that they will be a formidable fighting force against the Harkonnens and the Sardaukar. And basically, this is just like the British Empire. They had their sepoys. Leto, one of the Fremen. Um, and the notion of a benevolent absolute ruler is still playing into this myth of the white savior, you know, shouldering the white man's burden on behalf of the ignorant and savage subjects. Mm -hmm. And uh, later on, well, I guess it's only hinted at in the novel, but in the sequels, we see what happens when these noble savages, quote unquote, are unleashed on galactic civilization. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, there's a lot more going on. And one of the reasons why I asked the question is who is good and who is bad can, it's from whatever, there's different points of view. It depends on where you are situating yourself within this world or how the, you might answer those questions. Mm -hmm. Okay, this is my final question. This is a, a big one. This wraps around, uh, this is about the final scene in part one and it wraps around and connects with stuff that happened in the very first chapter of this section and the question is what did you think about the reveal at the end of part one which is that the lady jessica is baron harkonnen's own daughter and luke i am your father yeah and it's <laughs> also a benny jesseret plot it, it was no accident that this happened so i want to start with chris on that one yeah, I mean, I it, it definitely is it, it it makes it more fun. I mean, there's there's a tie now to as as a reader. I mean, uh, it, it makes it more interesting because now there is a direct link to these cutaway sequences of the Baron. It it, it makes it more of a family drama, a not like a revenge. Who am I? Am I? Do I belong to this? Is it DNA versus you know my belief system versus you know, what I choose uh, as a as a man growing up. You know what I mean? All those th those things are all very interesting. Mm -hmm. Does it matter who my dad is? Does it matter who my grandfather is? Does it matter? All those things. Um, and yeah, no, I mean, it, it, it def identity. Yes, that, thank you. That's a better way of saying it. Yeah, so it's, yeah, it, it, it's a cool, it's a cool point. I, again, this book is, I think it predates Star Wars, mm -hmm. correct? Yes. So, mm -hmm. you know, it did it first, but, 
culture-wise, I think it did influence we, we George all, Lucas. This is documented. Yeah, sure. No, but I'm saying like culture-wise, if you were to ask, the people would say, "Well, you know, this has already been done." <laughs> anyway, <laughs> for me, like reading it, um, but I still think it has a, a similar effect in that the ties that, that that bind the characters are now much more tense, and that's a good thing for a fun story, mm-hmm. a good story. Yeah. Uh, Tyler. I think, well, yeah, there's some of that. I, I guess I just don't want to spoil. Although the what I thought, I, I turned to the last page of book one, and or part one, where uh, it's a few paragraphs from the very end. He says he remained silent. He Paul remained silent, thinking like the seed he was, thinking with the race consciousness he had first experienced as terrible purpose. He found that he could no longer hate the Bene Gesserit or the Emperor or even the Harkonnens. They were all caught up in the se- in the need of their race to renew its scattered inheritance, to mm. cross and mingle and infuse their bloodlines into a great new pooling of the genes. And the race knew only one sure way of this, the ancient way, the, tri- the tried and, tr- and certain way that rolled over everything in its path, jihad. Yeah. Um, which is, so it's, it's right up until what you had mentioned a, a little bit earlier. So it's, it's, it's something that is... <clears throat> um, this is this is your kind of overarching. This is where things will go, and it's not just about it's not just about the Harkonnens, and it's not just about the uh, the Baron or Jessica. It's about um, the Bene Gesserit are they have they have plans across you know humanity, and like we mentioned before, tying in this this idea of humanity as sheep to be bred. You know mm-hmm. uh, they are they have plans for for humanity. Absolutely. Um, Thir- we- Go ahead, Peter. 13-year-old me, so my very first reading, was blown away by the reveal that Harkonnen was Je- Lady Jessica's yeah. father. This time through, I started to go, oh, wait, because I knew what was coming. And so even in the very first section, I picked up on um, the discussion, or th- we had the thoughts of the Reverend Mother um, as she was analyzing Paul for the first time and she kind of does a visual analysis and she notes his brow line of the maternal grandfather who cannot be named. So right there on the third page of text Hmm. we've got this mystery planted there and then I mean when um, Paul is is calling out the Reverend Mother like well why doesn't my mother know who her parents were? The Reverend Mother says we might, for example, have wanted to breed her to a close relative to set up a dominant in some genetic trait. Oof. So again, since I have the knowledge of where this going, is going, I'm able to pick out all these Easter eggs mm-hmm. that Herbert had put in there. And actually, and I guess this is maybe going beyond the scope of your question, but it is something that I think is worth mentioning about part one and the rest of the book. Those little um, epigraphs at the start of each like mini section, like chapter, um, for the first time on this reread, I'm realizing how on point they were. So the very first one of the book starts out, a beginning is the time for taking the most delicate care that the balances are correct. And then it goes on a little bit longer. uh, And that is from the Manual of Muad'Dib by the Princess Irulan, who we don't know the identity at this point, but we find out later. And in that first section, we get the Kwisatz Haderach introduced, and we get the question of the identity of Jessica's father. But the other thing that I think yeah. is worth mentioning is the yeah. fact that Paul 
gets a sense of his terrible purpose. Yes, yeah, that's struck me that when you read because, yeah, especially in the first section, like book one, but it shows up all over the place, and this sense that now that he has passed the test and it has awoken something new in him, yeah. he has this sense of a terrible purpose. So it's mm-hmm. like this guy has been set up, mm-hmm. and um, just those those um, epigraphs were really really cool. So yeah. if you have the text in front of you, pay attention to that. If you're doing audiobook, do the best you can. Okay. Yeah. We have about five minutes left, so I want to give Chris the chance to ask any burning question he has that we can respond to without spoilers, which we'll tell him, mm. um, that we can discuss for this final five minutes. Well, you, you've heard what I've just said about, like, my view of where the story is going. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, something I don't think we mentioned either. We realized that um, Lady Jessica is also pregnant. That we don't even think we said that, yep. did we? Not yet. Um, um, so and Paul knows that um, she is without her having said anything to anybody. Yes, I get. It. He can see beyond the veil. Like he's able to. Like he's yep. he's his his. He changes too. Um, like there's like a, a a moment of like change for him. Um, he grows uh, in these last few, few, you know, whatever it is, chapter or whatever in the book. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I guess um, knowing what I, my, my concerns and, you know, kind of where I'm seeing the, the story go, um, what would you, I mean, what would you say? I mean, like, is it, is it, am, am I, am I right to ask these questions? Do I, am I, thinking in the correct direction do you think i will i I don't know that there's any like other like questions of like i need you to clarify things for me i feel like again i know the big points okay but it's more along the lines of as i keep going do you think it'll do you think that stuff will improve or is it does it continue to be just as dense it was the first one set up the first book the first part set up and now I'm going to be like, okay, now we're in the story. Now we're in the, or is it going to continue to be, prepare me if it's going to continue to be this, like these big chunks of, you know, difficult uh, to get through. Uh, Tyler? I, I think, I think learning curve at the beginning means, you know, you're, you're jumped, you're, you're thrown into the pool and having to learn how to swim. And I think that, I think that at the very least you'll be dog paddling through here through the, you know, the, the next little bit. Oh, good. Okay, good. good. It does. Good. It, I'm not going to say it doesn't get weird because it, it's, it's, it will, it'll get weird for sure. It, the, this is a, awesome. this is a strange series in a lot of ways, but uh, I think that you'll, I think that you'll okay. get used to it. I think you will. Okay. All right. I'll prepare myself. I'll put on my, what is it called? The suit. The still suit. And Your still suit. My still suit and, and, and pray that I do drink, not die Drink some of thirst. that reconstituted <laughs> urine and be, be fine. And poop. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, yep. yeah. Tasty. All right, we've got... Or drink my own blood. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, we got about two minutes left. So, uh, Peter, did you have anything that you wanted to briefly mention that we didn't get to discuss already? Um, well, I sort of already shoehorned my two cents worth in on that last question. Okay. Not Tyler? Not to mix metaphors. Nope. All right. Wow, we did it. <laughs> 
Did we though? I mean, did we? No, I, mean, I think we did. You're right. You're right. <laughs> we made it through this we did discussion something. at least. And what I hope that our listeners take from this is, especially those who are reading it for the first time, like Chris, that you have a better idea of what you read with some of the context and discussion that was given this evening, some of the questions that were answered or things that were suggested. So if, it's, if you're feeling really daunted by what's the next part going to be like, hopefully some of this will help tie some of those threads together for you. Uh, we are going to be discussing uh, the second part um, that's going to be in late March, tentatively scheduled for the week of the 21st. Um, the next part is about 50 pages, give or take shorter, so around 200 pages uh, of text, depending on your edition, for um, the second part. I also just want to say that we are Dune fans, not Dune scholars. So if there's something <laughs> that we've missed or you don't think we really explained well enough. Um, or got wrong. Or got wrong. Absolutely. Yeah, or got wrong. Yeah. Um, Tyler is going to be posting this episode on, on Twitter and letting you guys know when it's out. And we'd love for you to um, reach out and give us your thoughts. And yes, Peter? I just remembered one thing I did want to mention. Okay. If you, are, if you have a print copy and you're not relying on audiobook, there is a map in the back of the book. Ah, so maybe we should if, if I, I've noticed there are some resources at the bottom of our show notes. Maybe we could make those available um, on Facebook as well or, or something that we found that has been very helpful because I'm going to check out some of these things. Uh, it looks like we've got like the history of trees, the dune and religion. So, so, so there's some interesting maybe back reading that I'm going to be doing after reading this first part. I'm definitely going to dig in a little bit into the map finding an appendix, finding a, a glossary of terms. Okay. That kind of stuff might be helpful for us to give those who are following along with us. Just be very Just careful of reading any of the articles that are from general news sources because they're not necessarily going to be spoiler free. Yes, I appreciate that. Maybe you guys can do a little bit of uh, curate, curation and choose the ones that are appropriate, um, uh, but would be helpful because I... I, I do need to do a little bit of extra curricular okay. research um, just to kind of give myself, get myself some bearings. Um, so reach out on Twitter, talk to us about this episode, share your thoughts, especially we'd love to hear from people who are reading Dune for the first time or who haven't read it in a long time to just share your experiences with us. Um, I also want to give you a preview. Um, we'll, when we do uh, part three, the final part in the book, uh, which is going to be, you know, some weeks away yet we're going to be talking about dune genesis which is an essay that frank herbert wrote and published in omni magazine in july of 1980 and it's basically him giving his thoughts behind how he came up with dune and hmm. the issues that he wanted to discuss with it so do not read it until you've finished dune but just a heads up that we are going to be discussing it and um if you go look up Dune Genesis on Goodreads, um, the entry there for it has a link to um, the website that hosts it. So if you don't find it with a Google search, you can find it uh, through the Goodreads entry for this title. There's a link there in a review that was written on it. Um, it's not a terribly long essay, but I think you'll find it a really interesting discussion once you finish the book. And uh, so plan ahead for that in our part three. You've got plenty of time to do that. Cool. So um, we are at the end of our episode. Um, you can find us at Geek Card Check 
on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We're probably the most active on Twitter, but we will respond from the other places too. Until next time, you're thinking I'm the Kwisak Haderach, he said. Put that out of your mind. I'm something unexpected. Thank you.